invite you to take a Bible and turn to the Gospel of Mark, uh, chapter 13. Mark, chapter 13. Today is what is referred to, obviously, as Palm Sunday. As uh, Eric mentioned earlier, that's the uh, day we look back on when Jesus made his entrance into the city of Jerusalem and set in motion the events that would culminate with his crucifixion on Friday of that week and his resurrection the following Sunday. Now, on either Tuesday or Wednesday of that week, Jesus came into Jerusalem on, on Sunday. On Tuesday or Wednesday, he spoke these words in Mark chapter 13. Uh, this is the longest sermon in the Gospel of Mark. Mark rarely includes much of all of, the, uh, of any of the sermons, and so this is the longest. And it's called the Olivet Discourse. It's probably the most neglected of the words that Jesus spoke in that, that week uh, of all the, the uh, discourses that he, he gave. It was delivered on the Mount of Olives. That's why it's called the Olivet Discourse. Uh, Follow along with me, if you will, as I read from Mark 13. As he was leaving the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. Do you see all these great buildings, replied Jesus? Not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things happen? And what will be the signs that they are all about to be fulfilled? Jesus said to them, Watch out that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name, claiming I am he and will deceive many. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places and famines. These are the beginning of birth pains. You must be on your guard. You will be handed over to local councils and flogged in the synagogues. On account of me, you will stand before governors and kings as witnesses to them, and the gospel must first be preached to all nations. Whenever you are arrested and brought to trial, do not worry beforehand about what to say. Just say whatever is given you at that time, for it is not you speaking, but the Holy Spirit. Brother will betray brother to death and father his child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. All men will hate you because of me, because he who stands firm to the end will be saved. When you see the abomination that causes desolation standing where it does not belong, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one on the roof of his house go down or enter the house to take anything out. Let no one in the field go back to get his cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that this will not take place in winter because those will be days of distress unequaled from the beginning when God created the world until now and never to be equaled again. If the Lord had not cut short those days, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect whom he has chosen, he has shortened them. At that time, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christ and false prophets will appear and perform signs and miracles to deceive the elect, if, they, if that were possible. So be on your guard. I have told you everything ahead of time. But in those days following that distress, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, men will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory, and he will send his angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heavens. Now learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. 
Even so, when you see these things happening, you know that it is near, right at the door. I tell you the truth, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. No one knows about that day or hour, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, be alert. You do not know when that time will come. It's like a man going away. He leaves his house and puts his servants in charge, each with his assigned task, and tells the one at the door to keep watch. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know when the owner of the house will come back, whether in the evening or at midnight or when, he, or when the rooster crows or at dawn. If he comes suddenly, do not let him find you sleeping. What I say to you, I say to everyone, watch. Let's pray together. Father, we don't live enough in anticipation of your return. We pray that you might use this glance into your word toward that end. We need spiritual food. Our souls are hungry. We ask you to feed us now in Christ's name. Amen. Jesus here predicts some things that would happen in the relatively near future to when he spoke those, I believe in 70 A.D., and also in the far-off future of when he comes again. He's been teaching in the temple in Jerusalem. <clears throat> the temple itself is very important in this passage. The temple, the building, the temple that was there at that time um, was the focal point of the faith of the people, of the Jewish people, as it had been for their ancestors. Literally, for them, it was the house of God. God had promised to dwell there, and so there was a deep emotional connection with the temple itself. Some of you have a deep emotional connection to this building or other buildings. You, it goes back generations. Perhaps you had father and mother that funeral services were in this, this church building or, or you were baptized here as a youngster or whatever it might be. And so the temple, whatever you might feel toward any building you think of, they felt it many times over because their ancestors had worshipped there much, much longer uh, than we would have here. And so there was a deep emotional connection. And it was a symbol of God's restoring of his people from bondage and exile. So just the temple itself was very symbolic and very important in the lives of God's people. The construction itself of the building was impressive. Verses 1 and 2 describe how the disciples were walking through with Jesus and comments on how magnificent it was. This was the third version of the temple in Jerusalem. The first had been built by Solomon. That was destroyed by King Nebuchadnezzar of the Babylonians. The second was built by Ezra and Nehemiah. And the third was an enlargement of that building, and it was uh, almost finished about the time of Jesus' birth by Herod. And many ancient historians attest to the beauty and the magnificence and the enormous stones, some they say as large as boxcars, that were used to build the temple. It was huge. It was ornate. And so it would only stand to reason the disciples did what you and I would have done. We would have ever remarked about this magnificent structure. Immediately, Jesus urges them to see beyond the present to the future. And then he stuns them when he says the day will come when this will be completely destroyed. And then he adds, not one stone will be left upon another. In verses 3 and 4... And I'm not going through all the verses of this, just some of the highlights. The disciples would have been perplexed, caught off guard, stunned by what Jesus had said. 
But they don't stop him on the spot and ask the questions. They go out of the temple, then they are seated. They go and sit down on the the hill opposite, on the Mount of Olives. And then they begin to ask him questions, uh, particularly about what he was speaking of. And the three of them, these three disciples, ask what probably everyone was thinking. Had they heard him correctly? Had he really prophesied the destruction of God's sacred temple? For the disciples, that could mean only one thing. That would be the end of the world. Uh, That's made clear in Matthew's gospel. Um, Matthew adds that they asked one of the questions, when will this happen and what will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age? So they associated the destruction of God's temple there in Jerusalem with the end of life as we know it now. So Jesus begins to answer them in verses 5 and following. And his first words are an admonition. Watch out that no one deceives you. His very first comment. Watch out that no one deceives you. He knew, Jesus knew that, that many of his followers could and would fall to false teachers in the days ahead. Some of those teachers would actually claim to be Christ. Others would point to the signs of the times of wars and rumors of wars, and they would insist that those signs, coupled with natural disasters like earthquakes and famines, are signs that the end was just months away. But Jesus, in verse 8, refers to these as birth pains. They are simply the beginning of birth pains. When an expectant mother has accurate due date and has an accurate due date, And yet labor pains begin far in advance of that, many, many weeks ahead perhaps. They know that, okay, a birth is coming, but not right now. In seminary, there are many, many newlywed young couples like Barbara and I were, and so there are a lot of babies born in a compressed period. In the three-year period we're in seminary, it's just amazing how many babies are born. And you hear all sorts of stories. You've got students that don't believe in health insurance that have babies out in the apartments. You had all sorts of others that the, all sorts. It's every kind of story of childbirth you can almost imagine. Not to be recommended to anyone. That's just what happens. And sometimes people wouldn't have the money. They'd have midwives. There's, uh, there was one family that, I think it was their third or fourth child, and they were headed to the hospital where many of us would go. It was about 25 minutes away. Um, they'd already had two or three children before, and she said, told her husband, uh, baby's coming. Um, I'm beginning, I'm about, just a little bit, we need to go into the hospital. So they got to the hospital, and she said on the way over, she said, you know, they're getting a little bit stronger, these contractions. And so he pulled up in the parking lot and went inside and came out, and the baby was in the car. So what's the point? The point is, birth pains don't tell you precisely when it's coming. And that's what Jesus is saying. Just because there's birth pangs here doesn't tell you exactly when it's going to happen. And so that's the way he refers to those. It's an, it's an indication there's going to be a birth, but it doesn't tell you precisely when that birth will happen. Um, these events will be drawn out in God's patience. At other times, they may accelerate rapidly. But the point is we must live in readiness and expectation and not allow ourselves to be led into panic 
with wrong contractions. Do you know that Christopher, this is a little known fact, Christopher Columbus predicted the end of the world. He wrote a book entitled The Book of Prophecies. And he prophesied and was adamant that the world would come to an end in the year 1656. And he would be among those of a long list of people who have said the world, for whatever reason, will end on such and such a date. And Jesus says when you hear of wars and rumors of war, don't be misled, don't panic. Well, what will happen during that time? Verses 9 and following, it says that, that we may endure suffering. Verse 9, there may be persecution to be endured in verse 13. We need to face those realistically and not be blinded by the false hope that the end will come before, the, before followers of Christ's lives become too difficult. We're to be his witnesses. Verse 10 says his purpose is that the gospel must be preached to all people groups. Listen, when opposition comes, there's a temptation in churches to hunker down. But that is the time the gospel must go forth. The most unreached people groups in the world today are in the section of the world that's mainly Muslim countries. We must take the gospel there. And yes, many people will die doing it. It is dangerous. It is not looked at with favor. And the converts are not going to be seen favorably in the eyes of their families or in the eyes of their governments. We have no choice, though. That is when you have to get the gospel out. Safety was never a concern of the Apostle Paul as a missionary. He looked for God's leading and open doors, and yet whether he was going to suffer in the process was not a concern. So the destruction of the temple would take place within a matter of decades when Jesus spoke this. Jesus was teaching them that instead of it being the very end of the age, it would be the dawning of a new era. When Jerusalem would no longer keep God's covenant mercy within its walls, that would be destroyed, that temple. But instead, those followers of Christ, and you and me, we would become the temple of God. And we then take his mercy and grace and that message to the ends of the earth. We would show forth his glory among the peoples, not a building in Jerusalem. That destruction meant that Jesus would come soon afterwards. But that's soon in God's mind. It means that the return of Christ is the next great event on the divine calendar. But in the meantime, God is working patiently for the salvation of men. Now, let me give you my opinion, okay? I know some of you think Jesus won't come for long, long in the future, that all sorts of more things have to happen on earth to get better and better and better before he returns. Others to say, no, it's got to get a whole lot worse and worse and worse. My understanding is once the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed in 70 A.D., then all bets are off. Jesus can come at any time. That's my understanding of this passage. He could come tomorrow. There's no list of things that still have to happen according to Scripture before he can return. Now, let's look at this passage, the complicated one in verses 14 and following about the abomination of desolation. That was first mentioned in Daniel chapter 9 and 11 and 12. It referred to some awful act of sacrilege and blasphemy that would be committed against the Lord. 
There had been some examples of this in history in 168 A.D., a man that I won't even bore you with pronouncing his name. He had erected there in the temple an altar to the pagan god Zeus. He sacrificed pigs on it as an insult to God's people. It could have made reference to that. Most think it meant the complete destruction of the temple in 70 A.D. by the Titus and his Roman legionnaires. And verses 14 and following are very specific instructions that Jesus is giving to his hearers about what they should do when Titus and the Romans come against the temple, against Jerusalem. When the Roman army moved into Palestine and they began in uh, the late 60s, 66, 68 A.D., when they did that, many of the Jews fled. They fled to Jerusalem for safety. What does, what's the temptation in the ancient days when there was a battle and a threat, you would run into a city because the walls, right? That was the refuge. That was safety. What Jesus says here is, don't flee into the city. What you, where you think is going to be the place of safety is not. Flee to the hills. Run away from the city. And what happened to those in the city then when that happened? Uh, we know from many ancient uh, pagan and Jewish writers and historians that when the Romans brought the siege against the city, as many as, many as a million Jews starved, were crucified, there were so many crucifixions that the Romans removed all the trees from the hills to build crosses. And so our Lord's words were literally fulfilled. Now, he's switching as he goes through this chapter between what would happen in 70 A.D. and then what will happen when he returns at the end of the age. Verses 24 and following, it's kind of difficult to know which they're talking about. He's talking about the day of the Lord and his coming. Daniel 7 says the coming of the Son of Man refers to him being enthroned at the right hand of God, not so much about his coming from the right hand of God. In this case, when he says angels will be sent forth into the world, it refers to the worldwide proclamation of the gospel which followed the destruction of Jerusalem. Now, let me just give you a few lessons here as we come to the what I call the practical outworking.